so it's a new year. Um, it is, it's a new year. My goodness, you know, after 2020, we were, remember how excited we were for 2021? And we're like, oh, 2021 is going to be so much better. Um, I'm believing in faith that 2022 really is going to be better. Amen. Um, well, it is a new year, and the good thing about New Year's is it's a good time, at the beginning of the year, it's a good time to go back to the basics and to go back to the fundamentals of, what, of, of the foundations that, on which we're building our lives and building our church and all of those sort of things. And so today, um, we're going to, if you guys remember, we started last year the Gospel of John. We studied the Gospel of John all the way up until uh, the summer. Then we did Nehemiah, then Ephesians, then Advent. Next week, we're going to get back in the Gospel of John, and we're going to finish it. We haven't forgotten about it, but today I want to do one thing where we just go back to a matter of first importance, which is the cross of Christ, and particularly the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus. So if you've been coming to our church for any length of time, you know that we take uh, the communion every single week. Uh, every week we take the Lord's table, and some people say, why, why do you guys do that? Well, uh, today what I want to exp uh, hopefully describe to you is what it is we're doing when we take the Lord's table, and what it is that w w the symbol that we're celebrating and remembering when we take the bread and the cup. And so uh, we're going to, uh, I'm going I'm to talk about Mark 14, we're going to talk about the Lord's table, and then we're going to celebrate uh, by taking communion uh, together to begin the new year. So we're going to start start in Mark 14, and it's this is leading up to the Passover meal. Uh, so we're not going to jump right into the Passover meal. We're going to talk about the disciples as they traveled to the Passover meal, um, how they got to the table, because I think this will teach us a few things about how we should approach the table, how we should set our hearts and our souls and our spirits as we, as we prepare to take the bread and the cup. So Mark chapter 14, verse 12, it says, On the first day of, the un, of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and there will be a man carrying a jar of water, and he will meet you. Follow him. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? Go downtown, follow the man with the bucket, you know. Uh, and it says, verse 14, it says, Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There you will prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Passover. Um, the first thing I want you to see this afternoon is this, is that when you come to the table, you come to the table with trust. You come to the table trusting that God goes before you. Uh, there is a phrase in theology, particularly in the black church, where God is described as the already been there God. He is the already been there God. And what that means is wherever God sends us, he's already been there. He never calls us to a place that he's never first been himself. And Jesus, he had gone before his disciples. This is why he knew there was a man with a water jar. This is why he knew that that man could lead them to a place where there was a big room where they could have the Passover meal. Jesus had already gone ahead of his disciples and prepared the way. And it seems like an odd assignment for Jesus to give his disciples, though, doesn't it? 
Like, go into town. There's going to be a guy with a bucket of water. Follow him. He'll lead you. Why didn't Jesus just take them? I think that Jesus was trying to teach them that he had cleared a way for them in this assignment. You see, this is one of Jesus' final lessons that he gives his disciples. He is about to be crucified. And his final lesson with his disciples, he is beating the drum of trust. He's teaching them to trust him. He wants them to go deeper into the art of trusting him because he knows that after his death, they will need to be certain that God has paved the way for the mission that Jesus is going to give them. And so Jesus is teaching them to trust, but he's also instilling within them confidence that he goes before them. And maybe that's what God wants to teach you today as you begin a new year, to trust that God has gone before you. Some of you are facing very big God assignments right now. Uh, maybe you're about to get married. That's a big assignment that God has called you to. Maybe you're about to have a child. That's a big assignment that God is calling you to. Maybe you're anxious. Uh, maybe you're, you're wondering what kind of parent you'll be. Maybe you just had a child and that's the assignment God has given you. Some of you, the assignment God has given you is that your spouse is sick and you're wondering if you have the strength to be strong for them in this new year. Some of you, your parents are getting old and your parents are dying and that's an assignment that you're having to face this year and it feels hard and it feels like you don't have the strength to endure it. Maybe your child has been diagnosed with special needs or maybe you've been diagnosed with some sort of chronic illness or pain and you're wondering, how am I going to go through with this assignment that God has given me? I want you to start by simply realizing that God has gone before you. He knows what it's like to lose someone he loves. He knows what it's like to experience pain. He knows what it's like to experience uncertainty, and he knows what it's like to experience betrayal. Whatever God is calling you to, he's already been there. Other cases, some of you, it's not that it's anything negative. God's calling you to something actually really great. Maybe he's calling you to start something in 2022. Maybe he's calling you to start a business or to start a ministry or to serve the world in some way or to create something. Or maybe God is calling you to initiate a relationship of some kind. All these things are assignments that God gives us, and they may seem uncertain. But do you trust in the already been there God, the God that goes before you? If he's calling you to it, he's already been there. And he's prepared the way for you to walk in. And as you approach the table, figuratively, later this afternoon, we don't, we're not coming to the table still, pandemic, hopefully in 2022, but as you take your individually wrapped bread and cup today, as you approach Jesus and his broken body and his shed blood, you are approaching this moment, this taking communion, taking it knowing that whatever lies ahead, God has already gone before you. As you step into the life, the ministry, the calling that God has for your life, you don't step into it alone, and you don't step into it with uncertainty. You step into it knowing that God has already gone before you. And if he has called you to it, he has prepared the path for you to walk. So you come to the table with trust. So this is what he's teaching his disciples. As you go to the Passover room, you go with trust that I've made the way. But look at what it says, verse 17. It says, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said to them, listen, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you who is eating with me. And the disciples, they all began to be sorrowful and say to Jesus one after the other, is it I? 
And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, which is all of them. And for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, as you come to the table, second thing I want you to recognize is that you come to the table with humility. Um, one of my friends pointed this little detail of this in this passage out to me a few years ago. Um, when Jesus announces that one of his disciples would betray him, I think, I mean, if you really read the Gospels, if you, study, if you study the disciples, you would think in this moment that the disciples would begin blaming each other and going, it's not going to be me, it's going to be him. Is, is it you? Was it you? Was it you? Because all throughout the Gospels, the disciples are typically pretty arrogant, and they're usually pretty dense when it comes to the lessons Jesus is trying to teach them. And up to this point, that's what we would expect them to do, that we would expect them to start looking around and going, uh, who would do such a thing? Who would deny you, Jesus? And start blame shifting and finger pointing. Some would say, oh, it's probably Simon. What a coward. He's going to deny you. Or maybe it was John or James, the sons of thunder. Those guys are unpredictable. Or maybe it's Matthew. You know, he is a tax collector. Like, he, he's, he's a shady character. It's probably him. It's probably him. That's what you would expect the disciples to do in this moment. But they don't do it. My friend Trevin Rax writes, he says, we expect to see the disciples looking suspiciously at one another here, trying to figure out who might be the one who is the betrayer. We expect them to point the finger and say, is it him? But instead, they point the finger back at themselves and they say, is it me? If there's any encouragement in this passage, it's that the disciples immediately start looking at themselves and their own hearts and they don't immediately judge the others. Whenever we see someone fall into sin, our first temptation is to puff up and think, boy, I'm glad I'm stronger than that. Often when we hear a sermon that should step on our toes, we think, boy, I hope so-and-so is taking notes. They really need to hear that. We excel at finding faults with others when we should be finding fault in ourselves. Trevin goes on to add, the next time you hear of someone failing in some way, look inside your own heart and say, Lord, don't let that be me. I don't want to be the one who lets you down. Shower me with your grace again and again and remind me of my weakness. You know, it's a new year, which is a good time to reflect. You know, it's a great time to sit and reflect on the last year and reflect on the life ahead. It's a helpful time for all of us to ask, what's in my heart? What's distracting me? What's tempting me away from Jesus and not toward him? Especially when we take the bread and the cup. When we come to the table where we take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we're not supposed to bring our judgment toward others. We're not supposed to bring our, our disdain for other people's failures. Instead, we, bring our own, we, bring, we come humbly and bring our own disdain for our own sin. And we place our sin and our failures and our faults in God's hands and we believe that we are forgiven through Christ through the shed blood and the broken body and we receive Jesus' forgiveness for ourselves. Listen, when we take communion, there's, it's supposed to be preceded by confession. And confession is not, boy, look at what all these other people are doing. <laughs> Confession is the time where you forget about the, look, we come together as the body of Christ. We sing to one another. We fellowship with one another. We, we, we read the scriptures together. We do a lot of things one another together. But when it comes time to confession, you don't worry about the people around you. When it comes time for confession, you are confessing your sins to God, and you're not worrying about everybody else's. You've got enough of your own. 
That's what it means to humbly come to the table. You don't worry about what everybody else is bringing to the table. You just worry about what you're bringing. You give it to the crucified Christ, and then he will replace it with forgiveness and with joy and with grace. So before you take the bread and cup today, I want you to be like the disciples. Don't go, oh, is it them? What are they bringing to the table? I want you to say, what am I bringing? What's in my heart? Is it me, Lord, that has betrayed you? And then you come and you receive his forgiveness. Now, let's get to the meat of the passage, the the last supper part. So verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, Take, for this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So let's talk about the meaning of the Last Supper. We've all seen the pictures, right, of the, you know, white Jesus with all the nice-looking people next to him, you know, the the Last Supper. But I want us to think for a moment, what was that like? And what is the purpose? What's the meaning of the Last Supper? You know, when we celebrate, all of us know that when we celebrate an event or a milestone in our lives, we almost always do it with food, don't we? Celebration is not celebration without food. Food is what makes something an occasion. I mean, think about birthdays are synonymous with what? Cake. You can't have a birthday without birthday cake. Like, I mean, you cannot have a birthday without birthday. That's what it means to have a birthday party. Fourth of July, hot dogs and apple pie. Halloween, candy corn, which I will, I will fight to the death, is good, okay? People try to fight you on that. But then Easter, what do you have? You have peeps, and I will fight to the death. Those things are nasty. Those are disgusting. But you have, you have peeps at Easter. Uh, Thanksgiving, turkey, dressing, cranberry sauce from the can. Christmas, eggnog and gingerbread cookies, Valentine's, chocolate, St. Patrick's Day, beer, right? In my family, Rebecca and I, we like to celebrate our wedding anniversary every year by eating Ethiopian food. Why? Because our fourth anniversary, we celebrated in Ethiopia the night before we adopted our son. So that's, that's the way we, my wife and I celebrate our anniversaries. We eat Ethiopian food. That's part of our tradition. Food helps us celebrate. Uh, food helps us mark occasions. Food helps us remember. But see, food makes memories physical. I mean, when you think about, you know, for me, when I think about my grandmother, there are dishes that I think about. You know, uh, food has a, a, a way of, of bringing moments into our memory. Food is a very, very special thing. And we feel every time we eat and drink those things, we're reminded of the things that they're connected to in our memories. And Jesus' final meal with his disciples was supposed to, is, is meant to help us remember what he's done. And in fact, they took the Passover meal, which was an act of remembrance, and it was celebrating the, the, uh, the Jewish holiday, the Jewish uh, Passover. And, and this was the most significant holiday, it was and is the most significant holiday on the Jewish calendar. Um, it's an annual meal, Passover is, that commemorates one of the most defining moments in the history of God's people, in the history of the people of Israel, which is the Passover story in Exodus. This is where the people of Israel, if you remember, the people of Israel were in brutal slavery under the Egyptians. 
for years and years and years. And then Moses, God raises up Moses as uh, Israel's deliverer. Moses stands up to Pharaoh on behalf of God's people. And if you've ever heard the story, you know that God sends all these plagues on Egypt. And they're war- those, these are warnings to the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh continues to refuse, and God sends plague after plague after plague after plague until finally it gets to the ultimate plague, which is when he, God unleashes his full justice on the sins of Egypt. And the, the, when God releases his full wrath, it's death. Death was the final plague. Death was the final judgment. And there was something about this plague, though, that was different from the others. And what's different is that there was no separation between the Israelites and the Egyptians. See, God said when this plague comes, when the angel of death hovers over the city, when it comes over Egypt, it is going to fall on everyone. And to everyone whom the angel of death passes over, the firstborn son in the household will die. It wasn't just the Egyptians that would be hit, it would be the Israelites as well. Everyone in every home in Egypt would die under the wrath of God's judgment. But God, in his mercy, in his wrath, there is always mercy. He says there's a way to escape death. And the way to escape death, God says, was to put your faith in a sacrificial provision. Specifically, he, he told every family that if you would slaughter and eat a lamb and paint your doorpost with the blood of that lamb, then the angel of death would pass over your home because that, the blood of that lamb would satisfy the wrath of God. And so when death would come over the house, it would, it, would, it would not fall on you if you took shelter under the lamb substitute. You see, you were in, on, in Egypt that night, your family would be saved upon the basis of believing God's promise that you could be saved by the blood of a lamb. Your family connections didn't count. Didn't matter if you were from Egypt. Didn't matter if you were from Israel. Your good deeds didn't count. You must have faith in the sacrificial lamb. And this is how God delivered his people. And his people believed his word. They slaughtered a lamb, they ate the lamb, and they put the, they put the blood over the doorposts. And when the wrath of God came into Egypt that night, it passed over them. This is why it was called the Passover. Lord, let your judgment pass over us. In one of the traditions at the Passover meal, there would be a moment in the meal where the little child would ask out loud, what do these things mean? And the patriarch of the family would then recount the Exodus story. And he would say something along the lines of, well, we were slaves under the sentence of death, but we took shelter under the blood of a lamb, and we escaped that bondage. And God put himself in our midst, and we followed him into the promised land. And then they would give, they would take the bread, they would bless the bread, they would break the bread, and they would give it out. And the leader of the Passover would say, this is the bread of suffering that our fathers ate in the wilderness. And then they would pass the cup and they would say, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. But Jesus does not say these things exactly. And that would have been startling because this was a script that they had, the disciples, they had had the Passover meal many, many times throughout their lives. And they were expecting the same thing to be said, the tradition to be said. It would be like changing the lyrics to Jingle Bells. People say, what? You know, you'd notice. But Jesus says something different in the, in, in the Last Supper. And it would have startled them. It would surprise them. And Jesus doesn't say, this is the bread of our fathers. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Every time you take of these things, don't remember the past. 
but remember me, Jesus says. And Jesus took the Passover meal and he made it about himself. And he was saying that I have come to bring the ultimate deliverance from slavery, slavery to sin. In me, Jesus says to the disciples, you will have the ultimate exodus, freedom from the slavery of sin, deliverance from affliction, from fear, from shame, from guilt, from insecurity, from death itself. Jesus says, I am the substitute. But my, by my death, God's judgment passes over you. This is why John the Baptist, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And just like the Israelites had Passover the night before their deliverance, this Passover was the night before Jesus' death. And the similarities are remarkable, aren't they? If you, study, if you read the Passover account in Exodus and if you read the Passover meal or the, the crucifixion account in the New Testament, it was a lamb that saved the people from God's justice at Passover. But now, on this night, it would be Jesus who becomes the ultimate lamb who will protect us from God's judgment. If we, just like the Israelites, have faith that the blood of a substitute will keep death from overcoming us, we will be saved. This is the gospel. This is the essence of Christianity, and many people actually take great offense to this. Why, why so bloody, people will say. But why did Jesus have to die? That makes God seem cruel. Why does there have to be a death? Why does there have to be a substitute? Well, I remember being in college, and I was a young Christian. I was passionate about my faith, and so I was talking about my faith to my friends, and one of my friends, he hit me with this question. He said, why, why a bloody cross? He said, if God is so powerful and loving, why didn't he just forgive us of our sins? Why did Jesus have to die? It seems so cruel. It seems like God is overreacting, my friend told me. And I was 20-something years old at the time, and I didn't have an answer. <laughs> Honestly, I thought it was a good question. I thought it was a reasonable question. And, but it was years later when I was studying church history when I came across the account of the 12th century theologian named Anselm of Canterbury. And he was asked the same question. Why didn't God just snap his fingers and get rid of sin without all of the destruction? And Anselm said, well, you have not yet considered how heavy the weight of sin truly is. And maybe this is true of us. Maybe if we're offended by the cross, it's because we haven't yet fully considered how heavy the weight of our sin truly is. You see, what Anselm said and what the scriptures and what Christian tradition teaches is that sin is so grievous to a holy God that it cannot simply be brushed aside. So back to the question, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why did Jesus have to die? The answer is that all real life-changing love requires substitutionary sacrifice. If you have ever attempted to love a troubled or wounded or suffering person, then you know that it costs you something. It costs you something. There is a sacrifice that you must make in, in order to, to love and serve a troubled or wounded person. Because in order to love someone who is hurting, you must enter into their hurt. And you have to sacrifice your comforts in order to love them. And when you do that, a lot of their hurt is going to be transferred to you. When you love a troubled person, a transfer occurs. Some of their trouble comes onto you even as your strength flows out to them. One author says, imagine when you were in high school. Imagine you were one of the cool kids. Can you imagine that? 
Some of you, I know you're cool. Some of you, you're like, I can't even imagine. Try to imagine for a moment what it's like to be a cool kid. But imagine you're, you're sitting at the popular kid's table, and you look over and you see a kid sitting all alone. He's unpopular. He's, people make fun of him. People have isolated him, marginalized him. And for whatever reason, nobody likes that person. People avoid them, and that person is lonely. They're isolated. Now, if you remember what high school was like. High school was hard. You remember that? What would have happened if you stepped up from the popular table and you walked over and sat with the isolated, alone kid that everybody made fun of? If you tried to reach out to that person and befriend them, almost inevitably, people will say, why are you hanging out with that kid? And their unpopularity will rub off on you. You want to, become, you want to know how quickly to get, you want to know how quick, how to get off the popular table quickly? Go start hanging out with the kids that aren't allowed at the popular table. And their unpopularity will rub off on you and you will be pushed out of the in crowd. You will feel the isolation so that that other person can feel love. High school is a cruel place, <laughs> but it gives us a good example of what, what it looks like to love hurting people. Several years ago, my home state, I was born and raised in Alabama. If you're wondering, where's that accent from? I can't, it's not Brooklyn, it's Alabama. Uh, my home state was hit with a series of devastating tornadoes. And story after story after story came out of fathers and school teachers and co-workers throwing themselves on top of other people so that they could be safe from the harm. And many people died giving shelter to other people when those, when those tornadoes came through. Many, and many people lived under the arms, the dying arms of people who loved them. You see, on the cross, Jesus is recognizing how heavy the weight of your sin truly is. And what he is doing is sin is like a tornado that is going to destroy you and ravage you. But Jesus, instead of backing up and going, they deserve it, Jesus instead lays on top of you and he takes the brunt of the wrath of God, his own father so that you and I can experience his mercy. This is what the cross was. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slaughtered so that his blood could be spread over the doorposts of our lives and so that death will pass over us and God's mercy would overwhelm his judgment. See, on the cross, Jesus is recognizing how heavy the weight of your sin is. It has caused you to be isolated from God, it has caused, and, 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 God, and Jesus is stepping in to rescue you from that isolation. And in order to rescue you from your sin, he must enter into it. And Jesus does enter into it by being crucified for us. He dies the death that we deserve so that we could have the life that only he deserves. And he takes it upon himself. He absorbs God's justice. And that is the death of Christ that we proclaim. This is why we sing about the cross. This is why we love the cross. This is why we, Christians talk about blood. It seems so weird, but it's through the blood of Jesus that we have life. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we've experienced the mercy of God. And we can be forgiven because Jesus poured out his blood. You, saw those, you see, those who were in Egypt, they were spared from the curse of death through the lamb. But then God was with them and led them into freedom and new life by parting the Red Sea. And likewise, we are spared from the curse of sin through the cross of Jesus. But through the resurrection, Jesus leads us into new life. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we do it as the scriptures command us to do it in remembrance of him. 
and to do it in remembrance of what he accomplished on the cross. You see, the cross isn't just a symbol of love. It's the very moment where death came upon Jesus so that it could pass over us. And those in Egypt on Passover had a choice. They could fall under the judgment of death or they could be saved under the blood of the lamb. All that was required for their, their salvation was faith. Faith that God would allow his judgment to be absorbed by the lamb and not them. And likewise, we have a choice. A choice to have faith. Faith in the claims of Jesus. That if we will believe that his blood offers shelter, that we will be free from death. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, I invite you, today is a time for you to consider the claims of Jesus. Is it true that salvation is offered only under Jesus' blood? And can you have faith in Jesus' grace and mercy? And so as we take the bread and the cup today, we aren't simply eating stale crackers and grape juice, are we? We're celebrating, we're remembering, we're feasting, and we're feeling the love of God for us in Christ on the cross. And so I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to take this. And, and, and when I finish praying, I'm going I'm to invite you into a time of confession, a, a time where you can confess that you trust God, that he's gone before you. A time where you confess that you have your own sins and you don't worry about the person sitting next to you. You confess your sin to him and you lay it at his feet and then you're going to take the bread and the cup and you're going to receive his broken body and his poured out blood and you're going to remember that whatever failure is on your mind or on your heart right now, it's already been forgiven in Christ. And then you step up from this place, we'll sing a song, we'll read Matthew 28, and then you'll leave this place with a renewed sense of gratitude for what God has done for you. So let me pray. God, we thank you for your broken, the broken body and the shed blood of your son, Jesus, who at Christmas we celebrate came into the world. But at the table we celebrate left this world for three days went under this earth. But three days later, he kicked open his own gravestone and invited us into new resurrected life. And so, God, we thank you that resurrection life is possible through the body and the blood. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.